welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most noteworthy, the most high-profiled homicide cases in Maryland are profiled and examined. This season, season one, child murders are profiled. This week, child murderer Robert Philippi and the unsolved homicide of Sherry Montgomery Canty are profiled. 43-year-old Robert Emmett Philippi and his estranged Japanese wife, 29-year-old Naoko Nekajimi, were going through a nasty, ugly, bitter divorce. Neighbors and family said that Robin often complained about problems and issues with his ongoing divorce and his ex-wife, but no one, absolutely no one, knew just what this father was capable of. On June 9, 2002, around 11.30 p.m., the Howard County Police Department received a call. The call was from a frantic woman and she said that she had just gotten a call from her brother, Robert, who told her that he had just killed his two young daughters and was about to kill himself. When the police got to the two-story single-family home in the 10,800 block of Harmel Drive in Columbia, Maryland, they found Robert sitting at the kitchen table, crying, smoking a cigarette with a pill bottle and a drink in front of him. The successful banker did have obvious signs of a suicide attempt, like rope burns on his neck and pinpoint hemorrhages in his eyes. And they did find a rope that was tied to the rafters in his basement. But the seasoned officers were not ready, not prepared at all for the horrific scene that they discovered in an upstairs bedroom. Lying on a bed, side by side, were the bodies of his daughters, two-year-old Lindsay Filippi and four-year-old Nicole Filippi. The girls had a white rope around their neck and next to their still warm bodies was a piece of broken wood that had been used as some sort of homemade tourniquet to twist a rope to cut off their air circulation. Two handwritten suicide notes were also in plain view to be found. One of the letters was addressed to his sister, and in the letter that's filled with racial slurs against his wife, he's ordering his sister to not let his wife get any of his stuff out of his house or his money, and to not give his wife his dead children's ashes. The other letter was addressed to his wife, and he said in big, bold letters, you can go back now. On the dresser was a book called Suicide with a chapter, Asphyxiation, that was bookmarked. Both of his daughters were rushed to Howard County General Hospital, where they both were pronounced dead on arrival from ligature strangulation. Robert himself was taken to Laurel Regional Hospital for an examination and treatment, but doctors released him to the police as soon as they determined that he was fine. He was then promptly arrested and charged with the first-degree murder of his daughters. His arrest completely stunned his neighbors. Just hours before he strangled the girls, a neighbor had just sat on his deck and ate hot dogs with him 
while their daughters played together. Robert had worked the grill and they talked and laughed as their daughters played in their lap pool, chased fireflies, and shot off sparklers. Just three hours later, by midnight, the girls would be dead. How did this couple get here? What happened? Just what led up to Robert basically choking his daughters to death? How could this have happened from a man who had no criminal history and everyone said he loved his daughters tremendously and would do anything for them? In order to find that out, you have to take a trip back to his past relationships. Robert had been married before, and in an interview that his ex-wife gave to the Associated Press, his first wife said that she met Robert in 1984, when they were both students at Penn State University. He was an undergraduate science student, and she was an undergraduate art student, and they met while they both were taking art classes together. At the age of 26, he earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in mineral economics. She said at first he was extremely charming, but then his controlling and abusive nature suddenly came to the forefront. Still, in August of 1986, they got married. His first wife told reporters that something as simple as a pitcher or a towel hanging crooked could set him off in a fit of rage. She said he would throw things at her, he would follow her, he would stalk her, he would harass her, and lock her out of their own house whenever he got used to it, or whenever he got mad. Less than a year after she said I do to him, nine months later she said I don't, and filed for divorce. Playing no games whatsoever, she moved over 2,000 miles away from him and never saw or spoke to him again. And although she never filed any criminal assault charges against him because she wanted to just put his entire memory behind her, she did reference and mention all of the abuse in her divorce papers to the court. Her divorce was finalized in 1988, and Robert moved on to finding his next wife. He got a prestigious job as a banker with an international finance corporation in Washington, D.C., which was a division of the World Bank Organization that creates loans to various different companies throughout the entire world. And in 1996, he married Naoka after meeting her in Tokyo on a business trip. She told reporters, like his ex-wife did, that he was obsessed with control even before they got married. Once, out of frustration, he smashed a new video camera to pieces because he couldn't figure out how to program it. And once he spit in her face when she wouldn't turn the TV down like he told her to. She said despite all this, she loved him and hoped and prayed that things would get better once they got married. But unfortunately, they went from bad to worse. In due time, she gave him two daughters that were both had citizenships in Japan and in the United States and she went to visit her family and on one of her visits to Japan she stayed six weeks longer than she promised. She told him that she would be back when she felt like coming back and that set him over the edge. After she came back from Japan in August 
She continued to live at the house with him, but she had very little contact with him as she wanted completely out of that marriage. Perhaps she was so far away from her family. I mean, she spoke very little English. She didn't have a job, even though the kids went to daycare like full time. She basically didn't have a life. Uh, she didn't have any friends there. She was quiet. She basically lived a reclusive life in Colombia. Maybe she did want to go back to Japan. They did talk about divorce. And in the fall, he basically kicked her out of the house and filed for divorce himself. In January, on the January 25th, at first she stayed in a hotel. Then, when he didn't let her back in the house, she signed a long-term lease for a rental unit in Colombia. Then she got a lawyer and filed a counter-complaint for custody of the kids in the divorce. He had temporarily full custody of the kids, and she filed for a formal answer with her lawyer to regain sole custody of her kids. She complained to the court that he had kicked her out of her house. Uh, he wouldn't give her reasonable, reasonable time with her kids, not even allowing them to stay nice with her. And she, he complained that she constantly threatened to take the girls to Japan permanently with her. She also complained that he was physically and emotionally, emotionally abusive to her. A judge set a court date for them to start mediation on these issues. And on the day before they were to meet up in court to discuss all these issues with custody and visitation and money and finances, everything like that, uh, he was, he sat on his deck chilling with his neighbor while he watched his daughters play for the last time in their lives. On the day that they were killed, the girls had spent their last day, the last night of their life basically with their mother and their grandparents who had been visiting from Japan. Around 5 p.m., she dropped the girls off with Robert and went to dinner with her own parents. Everything seemed normal with Robert and the girls. They spent their evening playing with the neighbor's kids. Uh, they He cooked on the grill. He cooked dinner for uh, his family and also his neighbor's family. Around 9.25 p.m., he called the girl's mothers pissed off because he said the girls didn't want to go to bed like they normally did at his house. They wanted to watch TV like what they were allowed to do at mommy's house. Who knows what his mental state was? Who knows what went through his mind because in less than two hours he was calling his sister telling her that the girls were dead and he basically had killed them and he basically could not kill himself like he had planned. The most disturbing factor in this whole case is that he wrote his thoughts down in a computer journal and most of his entries detail that he had been planning for weeks to kill the girls to spite their mother. Some of the things he wrote were, and I quote, I hate the woman to no end and I want to hurt her in the most unforgettable way imaginable. I dream every night of strangling the girls, then killing myself and purposely not leaving a note for her. I hope that if I do this task, she will live in pain every day of her life and live to be 100 years old so that her days are filled with pain and sadness. He wrote all this in his journal 
just two months before he killed his daughters. And later, just two weeks before the killings, on April 26, 2002, he wrote, Which is stronger, the hate I hold for the cunt or the love I have for these wonderful girls? In the end, I think that the hate for the cunt will rule, and I will take us all on a trip where there is no return. I am to inflict the most terrible pain I can in the heart of it, and I hope and pray the pain and suffering will last a million years. I will prevail. Be prepared, cunt, to live in constant anxiety and pain and loss, and I hope you go out of your fucking mind with grief. I want, the, I want to demonstrate just how much I hate the thought of you anywhere near the girls. And I want to haunt this lame excuse for a human being. Jeez. After he was arrested and charged with his daughter's murders, during his bail review, all he could do was hold his head down and cry like a baby. The details of his daughter's murders were made public. And he couldn't take it. His lawyers struggled to make sense of his actions and had no choice but to enter an insanity plea. He basically said he wasn't criminally responsible because he was just insane and out of his mind. But those pleas went completely out the window and on deaf ears after a judge ruled him sane and competent enough to stand trial for his kids' murders. Prosecutors wanted to seek the death penalty for him, but after he eventually withdrew his plea of not guilty by insanity, they took the death penalty off the table. Kind of because they knew that's what he wanted anyway, and they did not want to give him an easy way out. And finally, on May 12, 2003, he pled guilty to the grisly murders of his daughters. With tears streaming down his face and his shoulders shaking because he was crying so hard, the judge decided that for him the best punishment would, wouldn't even be a death sentence after all. He sentenced Robert to the rest of his natural life in prison behind bars. He figured that the best punishment for this monster would be for him to live every day of his life with the image of his daughters as he took their lives in his own hands. Part of his plea agreement came with the stipulation that he can never ever ask a judge for a reduction in his sentence or a new trial because if he does, prosecutors can always put the death penalty back on the table as an option for him. His wife, well his ex-wife, the mother of the kids that he killed, she decided not to go to Japan after all. I mean, she was finally granted her divorce and she has said that Robert has repeatedly still tried to contact her from jail even after her killing her kids, but she ignores him. She decided to stay in Colombia where she enrolled in an extensive English language program and she started to rebuild a new life for herself. I won't leave now. It would look like I was running away, like he made me run away, is what she said in an interview with the Associated Press. She also said, it's a form of revenge. He wants to die, but I want him to live every day in prison with the pain of what he did. I sometimes think of him killing the girls, what they must have been feeling. I shouldn't be the only one feeling this pain. He should be miserable too. I can't forget my children 
I can't forget my love for them or this tragedy, but I feel like my life has begun again. He wanted to make me as miserable as possible, but I have to start a new life, one without someone else controlling it, she continued. Whew. Now, I remember, of course, I remember when this case happened. Um, I could not believe what I heard, especially the details about the way he killed his two daughters. I could not understand for the life of me how a father or a parent in general can say they love their kids one minute, one minute they're in their arms, cradling, holding them, telling them how much they love them. The next minute, you're putting a homemade tourniquet around their neck, cutting off their circulation, just despite the other parent. I, I could not believe what I was reading. Um, I believe that the mother had tremendous amount of courage to come forward with her story and also to not leave Marilyn, to not let him run her off, and to basically face him in court. I believe that even if he does have tremendous remorse, I believe he's in the... Actually, uh, he's not... I did check up on him. I did write to him. Of course, he's not going to respond to any of my letters because I asked him, did he feel remorse, which I know he probably did a little bit. Um, from what I hear, though, from other inmates, he is a model uh, prisoner. He's not in a maximum security facility like I thought he would be. He's in a medium security facility. Um, but he will be spending the rest of his natural life in prison for murdering his kids with his bare hands. I don't know how he has not committed suicide in prison if he was so serious about committing suicide after murdering his kids, but that is something that he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life, and that's something I believe the judge made the right decision in not pursuing the death penalty for this case and making this man live with that image in his mind of him taking the life of his daughters. There's no telling what he is exposed to in prison, what uh, what type of treatment he is receiving from the other inmates, the other correctional officers. There's no telling. So I do believe that the punishment was fitting for him to, for the judge to deny him taking the easy way out, which would have been the death penalty and reliving that crime all over again. So I do believe that is something that he's would that is a better punishment for him to spend the rest of his natural life in prison. It's uh, just like how could you ever forgive yourself for for something like that? Um, he could probably be telling himself, "Oh well, you know, God forgives me" or something like that or whatever. I could not look myself in the mirror. Um, he didn't do just one, you know, it wasn't like he killed one and, oh, I feel so bad. I feel, you know, bad for it. You killed two of your daughters, like back to back. That's unforgivable. You know, this is why this was a notorious case in Maryland. The sheer brutality of this case. One that I, like I said, I remember clearly. 
and it's a case that will always, always uh, remain notorious in the state of Maryland. This episode's unsolved homicide is the unsolved homicide of Sherry Montgomery Canty. She was known as the Candy Lady. On Monday, October 25th, 2011, around 5.22 p.m., Sherry's stepson and a friend came to her home in the 900 block of East 41st Street in Northeast Baltimore. Once there, they found the 43-year-old with blunt force trauma to her head. 911 was called and police showed up with medics. Pronounced dead at the scene, they determined that she had been dead for at least a day and was actually killed on October the 24th, 2011. Distraught, her husband reported to the media and gave a statement. The last 24 hours have been rough for me because I love my wife. Sherry was known to run a small candy and DVD shop out of her home that was open to everybody in the neighborhood, but there was no signs of forced entry in her home. An alarm system that was in her home had also not been activated either. There have been absolutely no new leads or no new information in this case at all whatsoever. Sherry had plenty of friends, but no known enemies. And this part of Northeast Baltimore is quiet. Neighbors get along with each other. Neighbors look out for each other. They all saw no sign of any unusual activity that day. There was no sign of robbery or anything in her home. Police have absolutely no clues, no leads. Let's get this murder solved. If you have any information on Sherry's murder, please call the Baltimore City Police Department at 410-396-2100 or you can send a text message to his text tip line or text for tip line at 443-902-4824. Please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome homicide is examined and profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a real life production.